Most people think of a neuron as a general cell, but neurons are wacky weird. There are thousands of different cell types in the nervous system, each making highly intricate connections and coming together to form complex networks. Up until recent years, most scientists viewed the brain as a black box. We could define its inputs and outputs, but we had limited knowledge of its internal workings. Only now, with the development of novel tools and technologies, are researchers beginning to interrogate the functions of the nervous system with incredible precision at the level of molecules, cells, and circuits. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is The Veritas Lab, the podcast where we bring you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. In this episode, we're excited to meet with Jeffrey Macklis, the Max and Ann Wien Professor of Life Sciences in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University and Professor of Neurology and Neuroscience at Harvard Medical School. Over the course of his career as a physician scientist, Professor Macklis has contributed to our understanding of the development of the cerebral cortex and applied this developmental biology toward regeneration and repair of the central nervous system. His research has also illuminated why specific populations of neurons are vulnerable in neurodegenerative diseases such as ALS. Professor Macklis, thank you so much for joining us on the Veritas Lab. Thank you very much, Caitlin and Sanjana. So while you study the origin stories of cells in the nervous system, our first question for you is actually about your own origin story. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to the field of stem cell and regenerative neuroscience? The origin story is really that I was not a neuroscientist at all at my academic origins. I grew up doing some combination of catching grasshoppers and crickets and frogs and crayfish in jars and boxes and seeing how they responded to prey and different animals and then in some very insensitive kind of way, sort of taking them apart, then doing the same thing to things like radios and amplifiers and taking them apart and cars and bicycles and motorcycles. So I had some combination of physics engineering interests and biology of behavior interest. I went to MIT as an undergrad, where back in those days, one was allowed to actually get two separate degrees. So I did that, one in bioelectrical engineering, what would now be in the Department of Biological Engineering, I think, which was really biophysics and the the properties of membranes and how cells functioned. And then a second degree in literature with a minor in philosophy. And I was fortunate enough to be able to study as an undergrad with no Chomsky and natural language and linguistics and Thomas Kuhn when he moved up from Princeton on structure of scientific revolutions. But it was only when I first met Torsten Wiesel as a professor in one of my Harvard MIT HST combined graduate school medical school program courses that I saw that membranes and electrical properties and cognition and sensory processing were all connected. And they connected in the central nervous system. And they connected for me most centrally in the cerebral cortex. So I joined Richard Sidman's developmental neuroscience lab that had pioneered the birth of individual neuron types in the brain with tritiated autoradiography and also really the study of neurogenetics by studying weird mutant mice and naming them things like trembler and weaver and wobbler and then finding out which cells went wrong and then finding the genes that did those things. 
Yeah, definitely. That's super interesting. And we're glad that you brought up the fact that you studied literature during your undergrad at MIT because we thought that was a very interesting kind of origin story. And it was also very comforting to those of us like Caitlin and me who have had a lot of existential crises about trying to choose just one focus field in undergrad. Moving on to your current projects, I know that your lab is actively working on research that can help produce stem cell therapies to treat neurodegenerative diseases. I think the concept of a stem cell is often misunderstood, so maybe you could start by describing what it is and what it is not. The term stem cell really is most appropriate for cells like embryonic stem cells or the newly reprogrammed induced pluripotent stem cells or iPS cells that we all might decide have the capability, the potential to be directed to become any cell type in the body. The kicker is that many people use the words that they have the potential to become any cell in the body. And I'd point out it's really through dozens or scores or hundreds of specific molecular events that they need to be instructed to become specific kinds of cells. So there are no magic bullets. They don't just float around reading the world and deciding what to become in their mature state. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. This idea that stem cells require thousands of instructive signals in their environment in order to develop in a highly specified way, and that they aren't a magic bullet like many people believe. That being said, given the limitations of what stem cells can do, can you tell us a little bit about how your research into their developmental biology can help us better understand both regeneration and degeneration of the brain? I decided early on that if one understood the developmental biology of individual circuits or individual neuron types in the brain, you could restate developmental biology to be the generative biology, then one might understand what goes wrong in the myriad of neurodegenerative diseases in which a single neuron type or frequently two connected in a circuit, degenerate out of perhaps tens of thousands of distinct kinds of neurons. The same genetic mutation or variant might be in every cell in the body, in the skin, in the kidney, in the heart, in every one of the thousands of kinds of neurons in the brain, but only one or two degenerate. Why? So that's my interest in the degenerative biology. And then in terms of regeneration, almost out of that origin story as a biological engineer, it makes sense that if one understands how to generate an individual type of cell, one might be able to understand how to regenerate it. So I've been interested in this subset of what some term stem cell biology now of directed differentiation, of understanding essentially the assembly instructions well enough to rebuild, to repair, in the same sense that one might want to understand how a fancy car like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini is built to restore it and regenerate it back to function when it breaks. Continuing with that Ferrari analogy for a bit, what have we learned about how the cerebral cortex develops that can ultimately enable us to rebuild and repair it? Maybe to follow up with that, this process of how very specific neuron types can develop and mature from their stem cell and progenitor origins seems to me to be almost impossibly complex. So very broadly speaking, how much do we really understand about brain development, and how much do you think it is even possible to understand? Well, I think to step back a moment, the first thing is the brain 
the central nervous system, but the cerebral cortex in particular, is so immensely complex that one might just totally shy away from it and say, whoa, that's too much. How could we ever figure that out? And in fact, my former colleague, and I'll view him as a friend, the late Tom Jessel, used to say that to me. Jeff, I didn't go into the cerebral cortex because it was just too complex. I think over time, we've gotten enough experimental approaches and tools to take it apart and learn that it's built evolutionarily by the system breaking that huge complexity into manageable steps. So to your question, the first sort of overarching broad thing we've learned, and I'm proud that this really emerged from work of my lab 15 to 20 years ago, is that the cerebral cortex is not undecipherably complex, that it starts by breaking its progenitor pools into subsets, and they can make broad classes of kinds of neurons. And those broad classes then become diversified into smaller and smaller and smaller classes so that one can learn the multi-step coordination and control over neurons the next thing I think we learned is that individual so-called transcriptional regulators or transcription factors that bind to DNA and read out the DNA instructions into RNA, essentially translation into the biological translation of proteins that do the work. Interrupting to help out all the non-biology people in the room, which includes me. Transcription factors are these master proteins that can control which genes are expressed in which cells and at which time points. Those transcription factors can actually do totally distinct things in different kinds of neurons. So it's not about single genes doing something. It's about single genes doing a specific set of things in each cell type distinctly. That led us to learn that mutations of single genes that can be in every cell type of the body and every neuron type in the brain can actually affect a single neuron type badly while not affecting all the other neuron types. That's actually a different way of thinking. Because if one just studies what a gene does in some generic kind of brain neuron, one can get to very false conclusions. So I think to your point, I'm gratified that many of these genes and transcriptional regulators my lab has discovered, identified, elucidated over the years are now presented at every meeting on spinal cord injury and every meeting on ALS because they play specific roles in how those neurons are built and function. What we now need to understand is why does a variant or a mutation in some gene affect only one or two kinds of neurons? And that's, to me, the focus of the next decade of my lab and our work to take apart the relevant neurons to see why the same mutation or variant in a gene picks out one or two kinds of neurons out of the whole brain and why it leaves everybody else relatively untouched. And we have some clues now getting to how neurons use genes in their immensely complex spatial extent that different neuron types use genes 
very differently. And we think we're going to have some very new kinds of insights into diseases like ALS, Huntington's, autism, and how to regenerate neurons that you must know don't normally regenerate in the central nervous system. Because we have ideas about the parts of the neurons that don't work, where the gene is working perfectly well in other parts of that neuron. It's fascinating how a mutation in a gene that's present in all cells of the body might only affect a few types of neurons and not harm all the other cells. Could you maybe give us an example of how genes can take on different functions in different cell types? For instance, I think your lab uncovered the roles of a pair of transcription factors called CTIP1 and CTIP2 that can coordinate vastly different processes in the nervous system compared to the blood system. People have this misunderstanding that a gene does something. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Many of the transcription factors that I mentioned before in the nervous system, many of them have had known functions in other systems. So each neuronal, one can call them lineage, can use a specific molecular tool in different ways. So CTIP2 doesn't make blood cells or make immune cells or make corticospinal neurons or make these striatal neurons. What it does is in a context-dependent fashion, it turns on other genes that are required. And the remarkable thing is that genes can then have so many more functions than the number of genes that exist. And that's how we get this immense complexity that leads to literature and philosophy and complex thought and ballet and calligraphy and violin and babies learning to use fine pincer grasp and fine motor activity. That all comes out of this, in a sense, the orchestration of different molecular tools in the same way that a violin can play classical Baroque music or classical romantic symphonic music or jazz or can serve as a fiddle in folk music. It's the same instrument, but in different contexts with other partners, it does totally different things. Scientists have long thought of the nucleus and cell body of the neuron as the control center of the cell. But last year, your lab published a paper in Nature with the revolutionary finding that axons might be making decisions on their own. For our listeners who don't have a neuro background, axons are the long, thin fibers projecting out of neurons that transmit electrical impulses to other neurons. Guided by their sensitive tips, called growth cones, these axons extend over long distances to reach their targets in a process called axon guidance. So how does your discovery about axon autonomy change our fundamental understanding of how neurons operate? About 30 years ago, it was extremely controversial that proteins could be made anywhere except in the cell body of an amazingly complex neuron. The cell body of a neuron of the types we've been discussing that my lab is most interested in that have central functions in autism or intellectual disability or cognition or perfect voluntary movements of the types I was mentioning, if the cell body were the size of my six-foot-ish body, the axon of that same cell would be about the diameter of my arm 
it would extend 20 to 30 to 70 to 100 kilometers long, meaning it would extend from my office on Divinity in Kirkland to a specific room at Brown University. Other neurons would extend to a specific room at MIT, others to a specific room at Logan Airport, etc., which means that the volume of a neuron is 98 or 95 percent within the arm, within the axon, which means instead of thinking of them as essentially copper cables sending out messages from the cell, they are 98 percent of the cell. And until 30 years ago, as I mentioned, it was thought that all the translation into proteins all happened in the cell body. And the work you described from last year in Nature identified that not only is that going on with highly complex ribosomes out in those axons, but that the mRNA, the messengers, and other kinds of RNA are totally unique to those axons and their growth cones. The growth cones, as you mentioned, are the leading tips of those axons and function not only during that axon guidance that you asked me about, but I would put forward as developmental biologist that what Santiago Romoni Cajal told us 130 years ago when he first defined that neurons were individuated cells, those growth cones are actually immature synapses. So it's not just about axon guidance, it's about the very circuit building that you and Sanjana have been asking me about. So what we've discovered was that the RNAs in those growth cones, those immature synapses, are not only different from their own parent cell body, they're not just a subset, they actually can be totally distinct and they can be messages and other RNAs that one doesn't even normally detect in the cell body. So some of your listeners might say, whoa, Maclis, how could that possibly be? They have to start at the nucleus, right? And what we've discovered in the time since and what we first put forward in that paper as a first example of this is that there are RNA motifs, in a sense, address codes that send distinct RNAs into distinct types of circuit neuron axons. That adds more and more to deciphering the cerebral cortex and all of the nervous system because it means that the same kind of RNA can either be used in different subcellular locations or not of distinct kinds of neurons, which means that the same RNA abnormalities or defects that can occur in ALS might leave many neurons intact but yet destroy the circuitry of the two neuron types involved. So we're really excited and are applying that biology to understanding developmental molecules that we first discovered in mice, but are now known to be totally causal for human autism and intellectual disability. And we're discovering what actually goes wrong in the development and building of that circuitry. We're also applying this to human variants and mutations that lead to selective neuronal vulnerability in ALS. And we're beginning to discover how those specific neuron types suffer where others don't. And we're also applying this to finding out what changes in the growing tip of an axon from when it's growing during development 
to when it will no longer regenerate in maturity. And we're aiming to find out how we might reverse that and turn the tips of axons again into growing circuit building neurons. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting to look at these subcellular compartments of the neuron and realize that they're actually very autonomous. Now, before we wrap up, we wanted to ask you about one of your more unconventional research projects. In a 2017 study by your lab, you were basically working on encoding a digital movie into the genome of living bacteria using the CRISPR gene editing technology, and then reconstructing the movie with high accuracy by sequencing the bacterial DNA. This blew my mind when I read it. And it seems like the CRISPR-Cas bacterial immune system already works kind of like a computer, in the sense that when viruses try to infect the bacteria, the immune system stores this nucleotide sequence of these viruses in its genomic, quote, memory. Am I understanding that correctly? And could you expand on exactly how this works? So I want to give you a little bit of history. A really brilliant former postdoc came to my lab from Roger Nichols' lab at UCSF. Roger Nichol is really one of the fathers of modern cellular neuronal electrophysiology and is brilliant in his own right and recommended Seth as wonderful. About a year or two earlier, Alex Pulopoulos, another brilliant postdoc, came from Niels Brose's lab in Göttingen. And it turns out the two of them, totally coincidentally, they didn't know they were applying to my lab, had been fierce competitors and were the two independent co-discoverers of the neuroligand system that sets up all inhibitory synapses. So Seth with Roger Nickel and Alex Palopoulos with Niels Brosa published back-to-back papers in Neuron on this topic, and there was much further work. So they both came to my lab, and Alex pursued this subcellular biology question that we've just been discussing. And Seth started off and was going to learn molecular development so that he could think about how this amazingly complex cerebral cortex gets built and then apply his approaches of molecular electrophysiology to these systems in his future career. But within the first several months of his being initially in my lab, we started talking about how could we understand those transcription factors that we were just talking about and how they work in different cell types? And how could we define what I viewed as molecular trajectories of these neurons out of their progenitor or stem cell earlier history? And my very low-level engineering kind of metaphor that I used with Seth is I'd like to have a flight data recorder in each progenitor, in each neuron, recording the order and combination of its transcription factors that are turned on so that we could play back that recording to find out its molecular developmental trajectory. And then we could activate such a trajectory, at least in crude terms, to build individual kinds of neurons. So Seth and I were brainstorming about that idea when George Church gave a talk at our annual Center for Brain Science retreat in Cambridge at the AAAS headquarters. 
So George gave a talk saying that he wanted to use a synthetic biology to set up biological recordings within cells to gauge their glucose history, or maybe their infectious history, or maybe their protein production history. And Seth, being brilliant as he is, and I'll state that he's now an assistant professor at the Gladstone Institutes and UCSF, came to talk with me one of our individual Wednesday meetings and said, I would like to put together the flight data recorder idea with George's molecular memory idea and use this adaptation of the CRISPR system, which Sanjana, as you just pointed out, is almost like an old-fashioned digital punch card. It leaves a sequential and at least temporally ordered timestamp of what a cell has encountered. Now, it's a little bit more complex than that, but Seth, in a pair of papers, the one you mentioned in Nature and a prior one in Science the year earlier, encoded essentially pre-fed transcripts into cells, into bacteria, and as a population, not as an individual cell, and they could set up these linearly arranged temporally ordered historical memories of those input data. So in the first paper, Seth showed that that was possible. In the second paper, he showed using the gif of a horse running and the image of a human hand from a cave drawing to show that the information density of those could be both high and temporally ordered. So Seth is pursuing that kind of synthetic biology in his own lab at the Gladstone. I think George's lab is pursuing some related biology as cellular sensors. And for the work that I've described with you and discussed with you and Caitlin, I think it has relevance to doing exactly what I was mentioning, serving as a biologic, the equivalent of an airline flight data recorder to get very specific, particular selected details about a cell. Maybe 10, maybe 20 specific transcriptional regulators or genes being turned on just as we select altitude, velocity, fuel, voice commands in the cockpit. It won't record everything, but it'll record some very salient features of neuronal development. And to me, in the next three to five years, we might bring that together with some molecular timing devices that we're co-developing with Seth to put that together to guide development into regeneration and directed differentiation in stem cell biology. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that DNA can be used as an information storage system. I think that's the phrase you used in your paper. So when you're sequencing the DNA, the goal is that you can read the story of how the cell develops. The time is now really ripe to taking all of this emerging complexity of how cells develop, how they work, and how they are so diverse and distinct and using that to actually understand how that diversity and distinction builds the amazing function that we run into every day in class at Harvard University, and what goes wrong with every one of the very specific diseases that doesn't just make the whole body melt away, 
or make the whole brain not work. And the diversity and distinction that might enable the regeneration of individual cell types from beta cells for diabetes to corticospinal and spinal motor neurons for ALS. So I think we've spent decades amassing some of the basic instructions, and now it's time that we can actually bring those together. Professor Maklis, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about so many topics ranging from stem cells to cerebral cortex development to other stories of the nervous system. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time.